Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So those were all really great talks, a very common problem. I'm going to ask more of a population health type question and practice management type question. You know, as a PH doc, you know, probably eight out of 10 new patients that I see are group two due to diastolic heart failure. And so, you know, that's a lot of volume for us to manage and it can delay patients with group one PAH being seen in a timely fashion. And on the heart failure side, you know, our heart failure docs are inundated with patients. Many of them are really want to focus on advanced therapies and, you know, the numbers are staggering. Tom said 30 million people. Um, and there seems to be an underappreciation of this particular problem in the in the community primary care doc. So, so the way I see it is like this is not sustainable, you know, causing problems on both sides. So, just in terms of population health management, practice management, do you guys have any thoughts on what we should be doing differently as a healthcare system? Um, I know it's the easiest question of the day, right? Yeah. It's a it's a it's a big issue because. Uh, HEFPEF is only going to become more common. It's outstripped HEFREF as the most common type of heart failure. And um, these patients are everywhere. They're in every clinic. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I think that from a, a cardiology perspective, uh, general cardiologists um, have to be able and to manage uh, HEFPEF uh, uh, because there is just too much of a, uh, a demand uh, to see these patients, and it's out the door in terms of, um, you know, kind of wait times to see an advanced heart failure uh, uh, doctor to see these patients. And there are therapies that we, as a community of general cardiologists, m must become more comfortable starting that were traditionally maybe medications that we did not start uh, in clinic and general cardiology clinics, but... Uh, you know, we have to step outside of our comfort zone with these uh, medications, GLP-1 receptor agonist, SGLT-2 inhibitors, uh, because we're delaying care in our patients. They're getting re-hospitalized and re-hospitalized, and they're suffering from high risk. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that uh, that's, that's uh, uh, a very important point. And I would just say, you know, his historically, cardiologists have shown that, you know, we can, we can do this, you know, typically, you know, lipids were viewed as an endocrinology, endocrinology disorder, um, uh, for a long period of time. And, um, uh, and, you know, we routinely prescribe statins, we routinely prescribe lipid lowering therapies as cardiologists, general cardiologists and whatnot. So it's just a matter of kind of keeping that message going that we can do this, uh, in the general clinic setting. And otherwise I, I you know, I don't have other good Good answers. Uh, the only so a few things that I would add um, is I think it is an opportunity for multidisciplinary disease management as well. I think that there's a, a massive role here for pharmacist-led interventions um, going forward in the future. Uh, clearly, it's it's uh, a point where we're we're at a point where we need to work together with you know everyone who's referring patients to to work on education, and and then uh, you know down the line you could imagine. Things like artificial intelligence with echoes, I think, is one area where there is some particular promise, where you could help use that to more appropriately triage people. 
Um, but as someone who takes care of heart failure patients and also takes care of pulmonary hypertension patients, most of the time I'm just happy that they've gotten to my clinic because then I can lead them to the right place. Now, it is delays in care. It's not ideal. It's not the most efficient system. But at least they're in and we could get them started and, and get them to the right place. Yeah, I was, I'll just echo what you know, Revy and Tom were saying. So I also do take care of heart failure patients as well as pH patients. And I think um, as Mike had alluded to earlier, and then as you just mentioned with especially leveraging AI, just really using the echo report, even like changing how we report, instead of just saying PASP estimated is elevated, pulmonary hypertension is mild, moderate, severe, or not there. What do we think is that likely underlying? Like, do we think there's, you know, left heart disease prominence? Like, how else can we modify that report to really triage them? So that patient I presented um, in the, the case here for this section, I ultimately, you know, referred to Revy for the HEFPEF clinic. So how can we get them to Revy? Or do they actually have amyloid? We talked about, Tom talked about not missing any of those zebras. So are there, is there evidence of amyloid, for example, on strain imaging or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy on strain imaging? There's a lot of wealth of data that we can get from the echo and from there really try to steer our patients in the right direction. And then I totally agree with what Ravi said about being more comfortable with prescribing therapies that we didn't necessarily used to think was our domain. So really just the, the magnitude of effect of SGLT2 inhibitors. And then we have a lifestyle medicine program at Northwestern, as I'm sure there's similar, a lot of institutions, but there's a waiting list that can sometimes be a year. And so giving waiting that amount of time to get patients to a bariatric surgical intervention program or to a GLP-1 agonist just doesn't seem reasonable. Um, so getting comfortable with that, and then even you know with the advent of things like finerenone, a lot of us have patients who have CKD, hypertension, and so being comfortable with other, other therapies, and even if we're not starting it, I'm sending a letter back to the PCP referring and saying these are some of my suggestions while they're waiting to get to the next specialist. Yeah, so those are all really great thoughts. Um, another challenging question I have is, you know, we we see this problem commonly, right? And and yes, isolated post-capillary is the most common cause, but we think there's a lot of combined pre and post-capillary, yet when we try to enroll these patients in clinical trials, we don't do a very good job, right? You know, there's so many clinical trials that have not enrolled, um, even cadence, you know, everyone's excited about Cetat or something, enrollment in that is really, really um, poor. So why why do you think that is? Why, you know, why can't, why are we having such a hard time studying these patients? Uh, you know, I think uh, some of it it is, uh, you know, where you look. Um, and so uh, some of it's a patient population that, for example, um, in many cardiology clinics we see, we're just uh, potentially not doing the same diagnostic tests that let's say they come to your clinic uh, and have already, you know, you have made sure we've looked through invasive hemodynamics. A lot of these patients will get an echo, They'll get started on therapies. We don't know their true invasive hemodynamic physiology at rest and stress to say, look, this is a high-risk patient with you know combined pre-post-capillary pH. So they kind of float around in the ether. They may get some therapies, um, but they don't get uh, necessarily identified because of the maybe lack of willingness to uh, do some of the invasive hemodynamic testing that we should do. Um, you know, I think that uh, at least from a as a HEFPEF clinical trialist and enrolling, it has become a little bit of a challenge with the past two years uh, uh, getting people on therapies that I know will reduce their risk of heart failure, hospitalization, improve their quality of life. 
um, does take some time, SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1, that occasionally delays um, enrollment into clinical trials and sometimes there are, there are inclusion and exclusion criteria based on the timing of initiation of these therapies before enrollment in a new, uh, a new clinical trial. And it, it's important to give these patients um, uh, the ability to try these medications, obviously cost is an issue, intolerance is an issue, so not everyone will, one, benefit from them from a quality of life perspective, and two, be able to either afford them or uh, tolerate them without side effects. So I think that's created some challenges as well um, in getting them into these trials, which, you know, um, are really novel ways of looking at, um, you know, HEFPEF and left-sided heart disease. Uh, with novel mechanisms, so there there are patients who I think will benefit from them outside of the standard, you know, kind of pharmacologic therapies, uh, but it has been a challenge. I would add to that too that I think um, we didn't necessarily focus on it here. We were focusing on half-pef pH, but I think a lot of the CPCH patients that we see in practice are also our advanced heart failure patients who often have half-ref, and usually I think by the time that they have significant remodeling of their pulmonary vasculature. They're more in the end stage of their disease, and so we're probably thinking more about advanced therapies. As Tom mentioned, we can see dramatic improvements um, with LVAD therapy in those advanced stage patients, but perhaps thinking about what we call sort of like the C2 patients, not really stage D, but who are sort of transitioning, do we think about, you know, is that high PBR another area that we can target by enrolling in clinical trials to sort of kick the can down the road of advanced therapies further. And then I think also maybe a way to think about it is when we have, many of us have patients in the revolving door of recurrent heart failure admissions when we're thinking about offering things such as, you know, um, cardiomems or now enrolling in some of the more recent trials with the Cordella system and proactive, do we think about also, you know, we're going to have invasive hemos on all of those patients you know, we should be detecting CPCPH, thinking about enrolling in clinical trials in, the, in that space. So I've asked you two really hard questions, so I'm going to ask you a really easy and practical question. You know, when I see these patients in clinic, it like the basics are just not being done, right? It's the little old lady that doesn't want to take her Lasix because she has to go to the bathroom too much and, you know, has never been consoled about sodium and blood pressure is out of control. Like, how do you really convey to both the patients and, you know, primary care doctors and general cardiologists, like, really how to manage just some of the basics, like, like diuretics in specific. Like, if, if people, and I know that Volume control is hard work and is not often reimbursable, but how do we get that message out to the community, to the patients and the, the frontline doctors who see these patients? Well, <clears throat> I think it's challenging. I think, you know, uh, a lot of patients, uh, you know, with regard to the therapies, it's, it's, it's very important whenever uh, I see patients who come to me, they're typically elderly, they're typically on multiple medications, um, they, you know, have and suffer from polypharmacy, and they're, you know, quite frankly, sick and tired of taking an additional pill and an additional pill. And um, especially because at that age, a lot of these patients with elderly HEFPEF, quality of life is extraordinarily important to all of us, but especially important to them. And a lot of times, you know, uh, if you ask them, and I do ask them, you know, qual versus you know quality of life and quantity of life, you know, um, you know, kind of where do you stand? It's it's you know, I need to make the most of what whatever time I have left. And if Lasix 
is preventing them from doing those things that they want to do, they're just not going to take it. But I try to impress upon them um, <clears throat> staying out of the hospital, timing of medications when you take it, um, so that one, you're not up all night, or two, you're not running to the bathroom when you're out and about. Um, with the goal being keeping you out of the hospital, being with family, being able to do the things that you're doing, because if you do get hospitalized, that sets your quality of life back much more than um, you know the the quality of life hit that it takes uh, when you take a, a, a daily medication that comes with some side effects. Um, I do think it often requires multiple touch points in a clinical setting. We have to see these patients frequently and often to impress upon them these points. And it's challenging to do that in, you know, 15 to 20 minutes or less, you know, uh, when you have that with the patient. And so we typically see these patients very frequently when we're getting to know them, impress upon them some of these foundational aspects weighing yourself daily, same time of the day, same amount of clothes on, um, salt, uh, discretion, and, and, and uh, dietary uh, uh, modifications, and um, rationale for why we're giving you these pills and why it's not just an additional pill, but because it could improve your quality of life long term. But if you don't have multiple touch points with either us, our nurse practitioner, PA team, our nurse clinicians um, who communicate with them through the MyChart system, it can get lost and, and it's, uh, it's not possible in you know, 10, 15 minutes to do so. Yes, I think it, education, 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 and it just takes time. Uh, education for each one of these diseases, you know, all these conditions come together. And so you know, helping to understand the patient's goals I think is first and foremost because that's what we're trying to achieve and then setting expectations and, and you know, how you know, increasing physical activity, losing weight is going to help with these symptoms and you know, we'll make sure that your AFib is adequately treated. And so taking the time to, to help them understand why and really emphasize things that have evidence. Um, you know, we have medications now, helping them understand the, the rationale behind the, education, uh, the, the medications. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about sodium and fluid restriction. The reality of it is we, we don't have a ton of evidence of it. It's part of our core package that we go through for all our heart failure patients, but it's not something that's ever been shown to help people stay out of the hospital. And so that's honestly the thing I talk about the least. Um, I'll talk about it if a patient brings it up and asks me about it, but otherwise we have no evidence to say that that helps. We do have evidence that SGLT2 inhibitors may help you stay out of the hospital. And so that's where I try to focus my time. Um, but it is a long-term thing. There's no easy fix for any of these things. And, and, and so I think um, keeping patients involved in our clinics and starting to get enrolled in clinical trials, which brings us back to the last question, I think is the next step, um, because we are starting to have some trials that have shown some promise uh, for the first time in the history of HEFPEF. So. And then I'll just add to that, oh, sorry, um, just in terms of, you know, thinking about polypharmacy, which is especially a problem for a lot of our, you know, elderly HEFPEF patients, that there is the availability of a lot of poly pills. And so many of our HEFPEF patients have hypertension and there's combinations, like a wide variety of combinations of calcium channel blocker with thiazides or thiazides with an ACE or ARB. And so instead of adding like another pill for them to take, we can get the diuretic effect along with like, you know, improved blood pressure control. Um, so something to keep in mind that I think has 
has been more successful for certain of my elderly patients. And then also I find that a lot of the elderly patients really like the cardio mems or now like when we've enrolled in the Cordella, like they like having their numbers every day of like what their PA pressures are and what what's their blood pressure. And I have them come into like clinic with an Excel spreadsheet of what, where all their pressures have been. And I think it also helps the patient feel more empowered and a part of their care. And I find that that's been, you know, really successful. You just answered my question. <laughs> I was going to ask in the high, in the older patient population that you describe with the questionable time to benefit ratio of talking about salt and all of that. Is it your sense, obviously, as you just said, Yasmin, or is there data to back up that doing something like cardio mems really does impact the care of these patients? So you have a hard number for them to target rather than like, oh, I got to count how much salt is in this. There's data if you use the data. So, I mean, the, the, the CHAMPION trial showed a reduction in hospitalizations. Um, I think the, the biggest limitation to them is you see them occasionally put in and then no one follows it. And so if no one follows it, it's not going to help. But for patients um, that, that are able to, to do it each day and if you have the support, because it takes time, it takes time for someone to go in and look at the, the results and let the patient know what they should be on. You know, the currently available systems, the patient can't see the number themselves. Um, if you have that infrastructure, it can work fantastic for the right patient. Um, I'm going to ask a logistical question that I struggle with a little bit when seeing these patients with, that I think they have HEFPEF, they may not, they have a, an intermediate echocardiogram, it's not completely HEFPEF, it's not completely, you know, precapillary pH. And there's, uh, I, I've heard two train of thoughts on, on the timing of invasive hemodynamics. Do you do, you do a right up front? to prove that these patients have elevated left side of healing pressures? Do you try to optimize them first and then cath them, but you may have a normal wedge pressure because you've done a great job, and now you have a PVR of 3.1, 3.5, and they now have a diagnosis of pH? How do you go through that thinking process, if you don't mind? So typically in my own practice, um yeah, it's it's not a one size fits all answer for sure, and and it's definitely a tricky area. But I can say if I have a patient who really does not have any of those um, underlying PAH risk factors that I'd be worried about, you know, missing a significant precapillary disease even at an early presentation that's not overt on an echo like scleroderma or you know the portal pulmonary hypertension patient you know, methamphetamine use, HIV, and so on. If it seems that they have, you know, sleep-disordered breathing, very comorbid with HEF-PEF, and they're an intermediate probability based on the echo, like, the, you know, the H2-PEF score really comes out as intermediate, many of them will not have necessarily elevated natriuretic peptides, we know because of the increased adipose tissue. Then if I'm really trying to understand their functional limitation, then I'll I will send them for an exercise right heart cath to confirm that, to make sure that I'm not just starting them on SGLT2 inhibitor and an MRA without any evidence that that's going to really help improve their symptoms or reduce hospitalizations. And I actually, I just had a patient where I think her H2PEF score was three to four. Um, she was obese. She was actually, before I met her, I'd recently been started on a GLP-1 agonist. By the time we got a cath scheduled, she had already lost like 50 pounds and her symptoms were completely resolved. And that's not something that we then ended up going on to cath, but I kind of, that's how I, I sort of go through in my process. Yeah, if there are other indications for some of these therapies like an SGLT2 based off of non-albuminuric or albuminuric CKD, uh, type 2 diabetes, I, I wouldn't hesitate to start them um, uh, 
uh, if we can. So maybe not for the indication of potentially HEFPEF while undergoing a diagnostic evaluation, but for these other reasons, because I think the risk of delaying that therapy for these other indications um, uh, is outweighed by the potential benefit of starting them. And especially like, for example, as Dr. Raza mentioned, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, you know, there's marked reduction in CRP levels with the initiation of GLP-1 receptor agonists in the STEP-HEFPEF trial, whether that's all due to, um, you know, weight loss. Um, we, we clearly see a reduction in, in systemic inflammation with this uh, class of medications. Um, and, 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 and in, in the obese patient who is dyspneic, I think um, it, it should be considered as early as, as, as um, possible. Um, that's a good situation to be in. I would argue it's the optimal situation to be in. You've made the patient feel better. Um, you haven't delayed <clears throat> their care in any way. Um, and so uh, if they are overt, overtly congested in the office and we need to stave off a, a hospitalization, for sure I will start some therapies that you know, may not be as evidence-based, the loop diuretics, but just to get them to a point where we can at least um, get them feeling a little bit better to be able to potentially be on the recumbent bike to see what their exercise physiology looks like. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.